On today's 51%, we explore the world of film with archivist Audrey Kupferberg. If you don't like it, don't look. Because a lot of the world understands and wants to see and experience through film. I'm Jackie Orchard, and this is 51%. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. Film archivist Audrey Kupferberg has lived a lot of her life just off-screen, observing the stars and cataloging their work. She says archivists collect and preserve old footage and help institutions like museums and libraries to display it. Kupferberg worked for the American Film Institute and met more Hollywood stars than she can count. She says when she was in her 30s, she got to touch one of her favorites. In the 1970s, she was at the American Film Institute Annual Life Achievement Award Dinner, and she got bored. So she and her friend played a little game. We decided we were each going to pick a star of our choice, and we were going to touch him. <laughs> so, so, so we, uh, we circled the room, and it was a very big room, and... She, she saw Robert Mitchum, and, uh, and she said, that's for me. I, I'm going to touch him. Well, I've always been a little quirky, and I grew up absolutely loving George Burns. And there he was. So we walked the room together, and when we were close enough to the star of our choice, we put our hands out, touched their back, they turned around and we quickly moved away. <laughs> Talk about immature. <laughs> Kupferberg says she met Lillian Gish and Gloria Swanson. She calls them legends. But she adds that some stars are more difficult than others. I had a job at AFI. I was, I was given a task to stay next to Betty Davis for a whole evening uh, because we were raising money for preservation, film preservation, and um, she agreed to speak to the press. Well, she started to talk to the press, and everything she said was anti-preservation. She was being Betty Davis, that crazy character, you know, so grumpy, so above it all, elitist. And after... 30, 40 minutes of hearing her, you know, saying things like, oh, they never should have, uh, never should have bothered preserving that film of mine. They should trash it, you know, trash it. Oh, my God. So I just walked away from her and, and left her there. She was enjoying her time. But Kupferberg's absolute favorite star power moment? None other than the music man himself, Robert Preston. Of a jungle, animal instinct, masteria. Friends, the idle brain is the devil's playground. Trouble! Oh, that's all. Right here in River City. With a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. We've surely got trouble. At AFI, we were doing a series on acting. Uh, someone had the great idea of inviting Robert Preston to do an evening, and he said yes. And so I hosted the evening, and that was one of the most wonderful evenings of my career. Uh, he turned out to be 
more genteel, more charming, and more intellectual than I ever hoped for. And nice, you know, just a, a lovely man. He came with his wife. Uh, the first thing out of his mouth was, I understand you know more about me than I do. <laughs> and, and his wife said, why don't you two go off somewhere together? And, <laughs> And I was not going to say no. So, <laughs> so, so uh, that, that was really an incredible evening. Kupferberg says she and Preston did go off for a private conversation in her office, which every cataloger listened to from an adjoining room. But she says nothing happened, save for some shameless flirting. You see, I'll only be in town a short while and uh, a sadder but wiser girl for me. Please make your selection and leave. I have. What do you want to take out? The librarian. Kupferberg was born in Amsterdam, New York in 1949, about a block from where we're sitting now. This industrial upstate city was also home to Hollywood legend Kirk Douglas, who died at 103 in 2020. You couldn't enjoy what I made possible for you, no. You'd rather have this. Well, congratulations. You've got it. All laid out for you so you can wallow in pity for yourself. The walls of Kupferberg's ancestral home are covered with old Hollywood movie posters. Everything from Cary Grant embracing a beautiful starlet to French films I can't pronounce. Floor-to-ceiling shelves are overflowing with DVDs and VHS tapes. Boxes of film reels stand in corners. Even the metal filing cabinets are covered in magnets from past eras. One catches my eye. A woman brandishes a knife above bold, sinister letters that read, Beware My Lovely. And beside it is a miniature poster titled, Women in War. As we sit in her living room, a framed Pacific blackout Robert Preston smiles down on us from the stairwell. And there's another one over there. <laughs> In 1971, after graduating from the State University of New York in Albany, Kupferberg took her chances in New York City. But she says in those days, finding work as a woman was limiting. I went from job interview to job interview, uh, totally meaningless jobs, but they would have paid the rent. Uh, selling curtains at Bloomingdale's, uh, selling vinyl at Sam Goody's, uh, just anything that paid minimum wage where I could make my way and, uh, and eat, you know, at the same time. Uh, I couldn't get any of the jobs. There, there were too many people out there. I was hired at Bloomingdale's for the curtain job. My parents were in the curtain business. I knew all about curtains. And while they were doing my paperwork, someone else finished their paperwork, and I lost that job. So I was looking through the New York Times, and I saw this ad for Art Theater Guild secretary. I said, oh, it must be a place that sells box office, you know, sells tickets for shows. And it was right on 1501 Broadway, which is right Times Square the Paramount Building, the old Paramount Building. She says when she walked in, she felt right at home. There were films all over the floor, you know, uh, ICC cases and, and stacked reels of 16 and 35 millimeter films. I lost it. I, I was so excited. 
And I was so young. I mean, I was just turned 22. Kupferberg says she interviewed so well that the hiring manager fired someone else in the room to hire her. Talk about different times. He was like, you, you're out of here. You're you, out. You're in. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. That is a very 1970s thing to do. Like, when, <laughs> when you see shows from back then, they're always like, Johnson, you're fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and was Audrey going to be humane about it and say, oh, you shouldn't do that? No way. I, I was desperate. I was like three or four days away from having to get on that bus and come back home. Uh, so no way. You become pretty dog-eat-dog dog at yeah. that point. And in those days, young women, entry level, you were a secretary. If you were a man, young man, entry level, you were in the mailroom. So it wasn't really as though the guys had a better position. In some ways, the secretarial position was better because you were around your bosses you know, all the time and you could prove to them that you knew something. Kupferberg worked as the assistant to the film buyer for 14 months. The most interesting part of that adventure? It was the dawn of mainstream pornography, like the controversial 1972 film Deep Throat. You know, I think your problem might be physical instead of psychological. Have you ever, have you ever had an uh, internal examination? I found out shortly after getting the job with Art Theatre Guild that Sharepix had a lot of sex films. Sharepix was the sister company to Art Theatre Guild. Now, the 1970s were a time of sexploitation films. Uh, the, the 60s and 70s in the United States was a time of opening up morally, you know, in many ways, uh, and our tastes changed in, instead of uh, the sexploitation experience where a man goes in with a raincoat, you know, and, and hides his face. I mean, these became more, more mainstream. So I called my mother and I said, I just found out that I'm working at a place where one half of the sister companies has sex films. And she says, well, you're not going to leave that job. So, so, so we're going to tell people, we're going to tell people that you work in cinematography. Kupferberg says she doesn't like the word pornography. She says films are a reflection of life, and sex is a big part of life. And she says the films coming out in that time had plot. She would classify them as real movies. It's not looking at the sex act in a nasty way. I've seen pornography from early days of film. Stag films, uh, they're pornographic in some ways. Uh, yeah, there's a, a stag film, famous type of stag film called Golden Showers. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay. okay, you know, I would look at that and say, it's pretty pornographic. That's disgusting to me. Uh, but a film with a storyline where people go out on a date and then come back home and have sex, nah, that's, that's not pornographic. I asked Kupferberg what portraying sex in film adds to the film industry, and what would we be losing if we didn't allow that anymore? 
it adds a, a kind of realism. I was just uh, writing about Westerns. I talked about realism. What I was referring to at the time was Deadwood. Deadwood has people speaking in ways that are sometimes disgusting, uh, using using words, using terminology that are uh, are no long is no longer acceptable, and acting in ways towards one another uh, that uh, completely inhuman, inhumane. But that's the way it was, and that's the difference. Kupferberg says film is most honest when it deals with what was and what is. Calamity Jane in Deadwood is portrayed as lesbian. But some people don't think that's right. You shouldn't portray a woman as lesbian. They don't want to see it. Excuse me? They don't want to see it? (laughs) What business is uh, of theirs if the rest of the world is a certain way and they don't like what they see? You know, so I I think uh, film has to have the opportunity to expand to the most realistic of ways. I get very angry with very uh, conservative people who, who don't want to have films or pictures that put them off personally because they're only thinking of what puts them off. If you don't like it, don't look because a lot of the world understands and wants to see and experience through film. Kupferberg says because Art Theater Guild owned 45 theaters across the country, she was exposed to all genres. And I was booking all sorts of films, the Marx Brothers, the the Chaplin Festival. We were the first people to complete the the entire Chaplin Festival. Uh, and, and we had some theaters that ran sex films. We had some theaters that ran first run new films. We had uh, second run theaters. It was a wonderful experience. Kupferberg says at Art Theater Guild, she learned about production and distribution, how to publicize films, how to judge lab quality of new prints, and film projection. And they were kind enough to loan me for the course of my time there to loan me a 16 millimeter projector and I could take 16 millimeter prints of anything I wanted home and watch them. So uh, we worked with uh, the Andy Warhol people at that time. I, I was taking home Andy Warhol films, just watching them by myself, studying. It, it was a great, great time. This is from the 1966 Warhol film, The Chelsea Girls. I got scared. Did you, uh, do you remember your exact word? After her time in New York City, in 1972, Kupferberg hopped on a train to the American Film Institute in Washington, D.C. to demand a job, based off of one remark on a field trip where a man said, if you ever want a job, let us know. And I showed up at the American Film Institute offices, went to the person who had offered me that opportunity, David Shepard. He was a a great, well-known film archivist. Uh, and I said, David, I'm here. I'd like to have a job. <laughs> Sounds like out of a movie, you know. I don't think you could get away with it today. And he said, but 
we have no budget. We have no, no jobs available. You didn't even call. I said, no, I didn't, but I'm here. And he says, do you even have a place to stay? No, I, I can always get back on a train and come back home. He said, well, don't go yet. And he went and he spoke with the head of human resources and uh, came back and he said, well, you're my new assistant and uh, the head of human resources is going to visit her son for two weeks. So you have her house in Georgetown for the next two weeks. And that was my beginning at the American Film Institute. Kupferberg stayed with AFI until 1984. We had a small preservation program, and we had the AFI catalog, which many serious film people say the, the only two departments of real strength were the catalog, the national filmography, and the preservation program. Kupferberg, now a longtime film commentator for our home station, WAMC, says getting her hands dirty with film preservation was the best job she ever had. Actually working with celluloid, with nitrate, bringing in dirty, rusted cans of unidentified material, which could have been garbage or could have been something extraordinary, and working with it very carefully to uh, to identify, and then working in conjunction with the Library of Congress or National Archives or uh, George Eastman House or the Museum of Modern Art, or down the line, lots of archives, uh, to have the preservation process performed and maintain that film for hundreds of years to come. That you can't beat that for a job, you know? I'm broad-shouldered and I play racquetball and golf and I, I always had the, the muscles. Uh, so I could pick up these 30, 40, 50 pound ICC cases. They're be, heavy. Oh, they're very heavy when you, when you put lots of film in them and some are double-sized. Kupferberg says the weight and the back problems were worth it. She says there's just something magical about actual film that gets lost when you watch a DVD or stream. Because there's, there's no clickety, clickety, clickety in the, in the projector. Uh, there's no smoothness to the celluloid. Uh, it's, uh, no, it's a different feel, a different world. Glancing at some discarded reels in the other room, Kupferberg says format changes are as old as the medium itself. I'm an appraiser of motion pictures, rare, unique films that have some monetary value. What has come through the years in the way of formats, at first it was 35 millimeter, 28 millimeter, 9.5 millimeter, 16 millimeter, then video. You know, video is so, it's too complicated. Uh, you have so many failed formats that have to be accounted for at an archive. So really an archive, a film archive or a video archive has to be a museum of technology. 
Having absorbed films her whole life, while teaching at the University at Albany in 2009, Kufferberg decided to produce some herself. A good friend of mine, John McCarty, who has published more than 30 books, mostly on film, some, some on uh, mysteries, uh, he, uh, he wanted, he's a, a really good filmmaker. And he wanted to make a film, and I, I thought, that might be fun. John and I made several films over a, a several-year period. We made three films, and they're available on Amazon. One film is called Confinement, a modern interpretation of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, about a woman whose husband decides she is suffering from depression and confines her to an upstairs bedroom to recuperate. I try not to show it, but I get so angry with John at times. He doesn't really think I'm sick. It's a blessing that his sister can take care of the child. Such a sweet, lovely little boy. But I cannot be with him. Not yet. Kufferberg says the film is often shown in classrooms as a classic feminist work. Kufferberg says she never really experienced sexism in the film industry. She says the men she worked with just looked for talent. But she says the role of the leading lady has definitely changed over the years. When you have someone like Griffith who knew how to make a film, but whose viewpoint about women was uh, caveman, you know, you wind up with women acting like jumping around and acting like toddlers on screen. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, made in 1915, made large sums of money glorifying the Ku Klux Klan. It's considered the first blockbuster. He was presented a special Oscar and has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Audiences today are still watching Griffith while reconsidering his politics. When the director's a certain way it it shows up so uh but the older women in a lot of the first films are are more down to earth and intelligent i think that's because these male directors respected older women they had grandmothers they you know they saw them as images of respect but the early days of cinema tended to be all over the place. Kupferberg says after World War I, there was a big shift. The studios had become so rich, so connected to Wall Street, that women became relegated to being editors, cutters, film cutters, or uh, once in a while, something a little more. Or costume design and makeup, you know, things that you expect. A, a girl would know how to, how to do makeup, you know. So the early silent days, you get all kinds of looks at women. Uh, then in the 20s, 1920s, you have the societal change. You have the sweet young thing image in books and literature and in, in movies in culture pop culture moving from sweet shy dependent upon her man to the flapper and the flapper is either a very independent powerful type 
of mind, or she's just a silly girl trying to impress a boy. So you get both kinds of modern woman in the 20s. Kupferberg says some of the saddest times in film include watching women in the 40s and 50s playing the role of the devoted housekeeper. I mean, look at 1950s television, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best. The title says it all. And then in the 60s and 70s, uh, it became clear to a lot of female actors that they weren't getting good roles. And that's when some of them really started talking about it to the press. And that is when things began to change. Kupferberg says the American Film Institute started a special program in the 70s to train women as filmmakers. But she says once women went through the program, the studios still didn't really want to hire them. Kupferberg says there's still a shortage of female filmmakers, especially women of color. Kupferberg says whatever format they may take, movies are here to stay. She says we need them to fill in the gaps in our lives of the far-off adventures that we will never experience. The importance for our future with movies is the same as it's been since 1896. We look at movies to see ourselves, or we look at movies to see other people who we never will get the opportunity to meet, not just in a travelogue, but certainly in a travelogue. Uh, we meet people in dramas and comedies that we'll never have in our circle of friends, but maybe we'll learn something from watching the movie, or maybe we'll just get a lot of laughs out of it. And that's important, too. Uh, movies can do anything. You know, there's, there's nothing that a movie can't do. It can make you feel a certain way. It can educate you. Uh, it, it can make you disagree in a very strong way and uh, bring up fighting emotions. Or it can be purely visual, no story involved. And what does that do? Well, that does what a fine painting will do, brings feelings to you. I tell Kupferberg that I often watch girl power movies to inspire me, give me a boost when I need it. I tell her I was obsessed with Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games when I was an army officer. I watched Elizabeth Bennet chastise powerful men in Pride and Prejudice when I was in college, and Hermione Granger in Harry Potter when I needed to kick myself into studying. I tell her these characters made me who I am. And to my surprise, she warned me against that. She said films only have as much power as we give them. They aren't real. She said to not look to films to fix real life. She says at the end of the day, the best role model to have is yourself. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and I Thanks for joining us for this week's 51%. Thanks to our story editor, Ian Pickus. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Lolita by Albany-based artist Girl Blue. 51% is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this episode again or share it with your friends, sign up for our podcast or visit WAMC.org. And don't forget... 
Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 51% Radio. I'm your host, Jackie Orchard. Until next week, remember, the future is fearless. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night and on the hallway. I had to learn how to look away. I lost my cool no electricity. Hot rain on the concrete. Sweet melting little girl dreams. I said, oh, certain kind of wires at 17 thinking the flare on the lens was the real thing she was with her boyfriend in the back room i was chain smoking cigarettes and looking at the moon thought i was really in it i didn't really get it i lost my cool somewhere around the bed it started Just come on down.